Hello everyone, my name is Reese Garlinski and this is Young History, episode 140 on North Korea. The capitalist nation is Pyongyang. The Korean endonym for the country is Hanguk. In North Korean, it is known as Joseon, a name derived from the Joseon dynasty, which succeeded the Goryeo. It is derived from Goryeo, which is the 10th century kingdom of the peninsula, and that got its name all the way back in Goguryeo, which was the first Korean state ages ago. Now, in Pyongyang, the Ryogong Hotel, also known as the Hotel of Doom, is an unfinished 105-story pyramid-shaped skyscraper, and it is one of the largest unoccupied buildings in the world. We're also going to get into some other facts, which are that Pyongyang's metro system is one of the deepest in the world, doubling as a bomb shelter. The stations are ornately decorated, similar to those in the former Soviet states that helped build them. The Air Rang Festival is a gymnastics and artistic festival held in the Rungrado 1st of May Stadium, the largest stadium in the world by capacity because it can hold up to 114,000 people. Now, North Korea is one of the most difficult countries to visit. Tourism is heavily regulated, and the visitors are accompanied by government-appointed guides at all times. The North Korean calendar starts with the year of Kim Il-sung's birth in 1912, hence the year 2021 was year 110 in North Korea. And that's pretty much all I have to say to start us off. This is going to be a long history. There's a lot to sort through, a lot of dynasties and generals and all sorts of things. And then, of course, the great division between North Korea and its southern counterpart. So we're focusing on North Korea today. We're going to do it on up, and it's going to be good. So just wanted to say thank you guys so much for being here. And one more time before we go, my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History, and this is North Korea. You guys enjoy. Our origins begin around 3000 BC, when hunter-gatherers moved in, but had come from the rice paddy agriculture systems of China. Agriculturists used shell masks and were uncovered by modern archaeology to show what was happening with the people. We don't know much else about this time, so then we're going to make a little bit of a jump to Dangun. Dangun established the Gojusun Kingdom in 233 BC. This was the first proper state on the peninsula. His story is one of myth and legend, which I am going to get into now. Now, keep in mind a lot of this is a lot of mythology. The legend of Dangun begins with his divine ancestry. His grandfather, Hwani, the Lord of Heaven, and his father, Hwanyong, desired to live among humans. Hwanyong descended into earth and fathered Dangun with Ungunyo a bear who transformed into a woman after successfully enduring the gods' tests. Dangun's birth symbolizes the unity of celestial beings and earthly creatures, which reflects a deep connection between Korean culture and nature. He is traditionally credited with creating the entire Korean race and introducing methods of administration and government, possibly reflecting the earlier culture heritages between Korea and China as people moved in. After a long and prosperous reign, Danjin is said to have become a mountain spirit, a shanshi, embodying the spiritual connection of Korean people to their land and history. The Gojoseon kingdom that he established was the first kingdom on the Korean peninsula, and eventually the kingdom came into conflict with Yan, China. This is a region of China that is very, very close to Korea, as you can imagine. The Gojoseon-Yan War was fought in the 300s BC. The Gojoseon lost land east of the peninsula and had to cede the territories that the Yan claimed. Emperor Wu of Han from the Han Dynasty gave the final defeat to the Gojoseon around 108 BC. This began early Chinese rule of Northern Korea. Chinese rule lasted until past the turn of the eras into 300 CE. 
the Korean state of Golgrio rose up to resist Chinese rule because although Chinese rule did bring a lot of art, writing styles, the Chinese scripture, a whole lot of things like that, there was still this desire to be independent because no one had forgotten their history as the state of Gojoseon. So, Golgorio rose up to resist Chinese rule around 37 BCE, and then Golgorio lasted as an established state until 668 CE. Sosurum was a prominent leader that shared Buddhism with his people and helped establish the true reforms to help the early Koreans. A pivotal moment of Golgorio's history was its conquest of the last Chinese commandery at Lelang in 313. This effectively ended four centuries of Chinese rule over the northern Korean peninsula that had lingered even since the defeat of the Chinese that controlled Golgorio. Now, one of the greatest leaders at this time was Gwangeto the Great. He was a military commander at the end of the 300s that expanded the Korean kingdom. He united the southern people under his rule, and he is credited with bringing about a golden age in the history of Korea through his conquests and effective governments. He left a legacy that is deeply revered in Korean history, and he is always one of the men mentioned whenever a Korean explains their history, no matter if they are from the north or the south. Jengsu of Gugreo was the son of Guangeto and ruled the kingdom from 413 to 491. He established Pyongyang as the capital of the nation. He also led the nation to its territorial peak, and this lasted until 598. That is when the Gurgeo Sui War broke out. The Sui dynasty of China challenged the Gogryo, and despite the size of it, Gogryo was actually victorious because of General Yulji Mendiok. General Mendok was a prominent general during the Gogryo dynasty. He is best known for his leadership at the Battle of Salsu in 612, where he decisively defeated a much larger Sui Chinese invasion. He led the Sui into a trap and cut their retreat off from the Korean peninsula, and it is cited as one of the best military feats in Korean history. The Gogryo Tang War broke out in 645 CE when the Tang Dynasty of China invaded the outer borders of the nation. This war lasted for 23 years and ended in 668. After this, Yan Gesomun was a powerful military commander that overthrew the previous king to usurp dictatorial power. When the Tang invaded, he defended the kingdom and won many victories in the first half of the war. His death marked the end of the resistance in the north. The Tang united their efforts with the southern kingdom of Sila, which had formed as one of the early South Korean civilizations, to challenge the north and defeat the Gugryo permanently. This started the Three Kingdoms period. Bakje and Shila of South Korea maintained power alongside Gugryo in what became known as the Three Kingdoms period. Gugryo was a mountain-based militaristic kingdom that held control in the area. Gugryo was always the most powerful of the Three Kingdoms, but was not permanently accepted by the other two. In 668, as part of the greater wars the Gugryo were having with the Tang, the Sila hopped in and forced Gugryo into a war on two fronts. This led to the full defeat of the Gugryo, and the Chinese rulers established the Andong Protectorate in 668. Chinese rule was very harsh. Many were forced into labor systems, and with this struggle, many people migrated north out of the nation. Centuries after Gugryo was defeated, King Taejo, a prince of formerly Gugryan dynasties, reformed his own dynasty known as the Goryeo. He ruled it with himself at the top from 918 to 943. He reestablished Pyongyang as a strong capital of this new Korean state, and he became a man of legend when he united all of Korea. He did this by marrying 29 women of royal descent across the Korean peninsula. Under his rule, Korean art and literature exploded in popularity, and there was a huge increase in production of both of these works. Many of the pieces lasted all the way until this day. Kang Kamchan was a Goryeo general that defended the area from the Lao dynasty. 
The Lao Dynasty had three wars with Goryeo in the early 1000s. Kang Chen was a major part of Goryeo victory. Age of 71, Kang Chen led a large Goryeo army against a Lao invasion. He orchestrated a defense victory at the Battle of Hyung Hewajin by employing a tactical maneuver involving the use of steam against the Lao army, which made it impossible for them to escape the area without being burned alive. Kang Chen's achievements in the Third Goryeo-Lao War not only secured Goryeo's independence from Lao aggression, but also established a balance of power in East Asia, contributing to a short period of peace that lasted between the different powers in the region. Mongol invasions hit Korea in the 12,000s. Destruction and death across the peninsula was common because of this. Peasant militias were created, and they heavily resisted the Mongols. And these peasants kind of defined the early part of Korean resistance, where from this point on through the next centuries, there's going to be this continued resistance of foreign rule and the move towards isolationism that Korea truly desires. And despite this strong resistance, the Koreans eventually surrendered and became a tributary state to the Huan dynasty of the Mongols. Gongnim of Goryeo was a military commander that pushed the Mongols out of the north around 1360. Then, there was the Red Turban Chinese rebels. They pushed into the peninsula and invaded Goryeo as part of the Greater Rebellion against the Wan Dynasty in China. This weakened the Kingdom of Goryeo. The first invasion occurred in 1359, leading to the capture of Pyongyang, but the Goryeo army successfully recaptured the city and secured the northern region. In the second invasion, in 1360, the Red Turbans occupied Guangyang, the Goryeo capital, for a short period. But despite this, the Goryeo were able to push out their adversaries, and the Red Turbans fled and had to go fight China elsewhere. But there was also Japanese pirates who raided the weakened coast of northern Goryeo, caused a lot of destruction, and combined everything that was happening in this period, all of the instability, to leave Goryeo very vulnerable. That's when we see one of the other very important military figures of this nation's history, General Yi Xiangyi. He was one of the generals who successfully repulsed the Red Turban invaders, and this gave him great prowess as a military leader. The critical turning point in his time as a general came when he was ordered to lead a campaign against the Ming Dynasty in China, which had replaced the Mongol Yuan Dynasty. Realizing the campaign would be disastrous, Xiangyi decided to turn his army back to the capital of Kaesong and stage a coup against the Goryeo king. After seizing power, Xiongyi declared the founding of a new dynasty in 1392, which he named Joseon. This was done to signal the beginning of a fresh start, or as he called it, a morning freshness. He moved the capital from Kaesong to Hanyang, which is the modern-day capital of South Korea, Seoul. He also established new political and administrative systems, and this was the start of a 500-year present of the Joseon. The Chinese philosophy of Confucianism also spread and heavily influenced the way the peninsula worked, and Confucianism is a very moral-based philosophy. It's very based in respecting elders, doing what tasks you need to do for your role in society, and then from there, using that to respect people who are below you and above you in position, but their biggest part of it is that the most respect goes to elders and higher-ranking people because of the honor they bring society. So it's a very honor-based, moral-based system or philosophy, I should say, and that moved heavily into Korea as Joseon was established. Sejong the Great is another prominent figure who ruled from 1418 to 1450. Sejong's most famous achievement was the invention of the Hangul, the Korean alphabet. He made it in 1443. Before Hangul, Koreans used classical Chinese characters, which were not well suited for the representation of the Korean language, and it made it very difficult for the common person to learn. With the establishment of Hangul, Korean culture was now made even more 
deeply rooted in the land and within the people. And that's why he was called the Great is because of this influence he brought. Sejong also established the Hall of Worthiness, which is known as Jif Yonjong, and is a royal research institute where scholars conducted studies in various fields. They studied astronomy, geography, medicine, and agriculture. They developed new technologies like water locks, sundials, astronomical maps, and star charts. These were some of the largest technological contributions at the time. After years of con- and towards the end of Sejong's rule, there was more and more interaction with Japan, and then by the end of the century, things started to get really tense. After years of constant raids on Korea by Japanese pirates, an official war was declared by Japan in 1592. The Imjin War was fought until 1598, and Korea was heavily outmatched. Yi Sun-sin, one of the great generals, led Korea against the Japanese. His leadership led to a full Japanese surrender. He was the first to use the Hwacha in warfare, which is a weapon that fired hundreds of gunpowder arrows all at once, kind of like almost like an early cannon, but kind of shot spread fire, like a machine gun or shotgun. And it was created by Koreans. Now, despite the victory, the peninsula was still very ravaged by the war, but Yi Sun-sin is still heavily regarded as one of the best, one of the best military commanders in the history of Korea. Following the Imjin War, Goryeo could not get a break from foreign invasions. The Manchurian invasion from China occurred in 1627. This invasion, layered on with all the other conflicts of the area, caused Korea to fall into a system of deep isolation from the world. Korea was able to maintain some level of autonomy with this invasion, but there was a lot of area secured by the Manchurians because of the war. Isolationism that Korea started to choose after all this caused the region to fall far behind in many technological advancements. And this led to some powers getting really interested in involving themselves in Korea and intervening with them because they felt that Korea with its resources and location would make a great port. There'd be a lot of trade. Even though Korea, which was Joseon at the time, was refusing to interact with other nations, that didn't mean that other nations were not interested because nations like the US, France, and eventually Japan all had this idea that Korea should be a part of the greater trade network that was happening worldwide and were willing to force them into it. France invaded Joseon in 1866. The French forces targeted Gagua Island and hoped to approach through the Han River and get to the capital. During the incursion, French forces looted and desecrated several royal Joseon tombs on the island. This caused outrage across the peninsula and several skirmishes would occur. After facing some logistical challenges, the French expedition withdrew. The campaign lasted for only a few weeks and failed to achieve any of the diplomatic success that France hoped it would. Then in 1871, the U.S. tried their hand. They also invaded Gangwa Island, and the conflict led to a loss of over 300 Korean soldiers and three Americans. And this occurred because there was also an attempt by the Americans to just convince the Joseon Koreans to become a part of a trade network and just start trading with the world. But they said no, the war broke out, those casualties happened. And despite the military victory that the Americans achieved because of the difference in casualties, the Americans were unable to secure a treaty or an audience with Korean officials. And this made the U.S. realize how much effort was going into this. So they withdrew. And now Korea was pretty much up to nothing on these foreign powers, foreign European, American powers, Western powers, as they say, trying to push in and say, you're going to do what we want. So good for Korea. But the power they could not overcome was closer to them than they expected. Japan used their larger military, which did not suffer from any slowness with industrialization to actually pressure Korea into a trade agreement. So the Japan-Korea Treaty of 1876 
forcibly opened Korea up to trade with Japan, and Korea agreed to the treaty to avoid war. Then, over Korea, there was the First Sino-Japanese War. It was fought between Qing Dynasty China and the Empire of Japan. They fought from 1894 to 1895 to control Korea. A decisive Japanese victory was achieved and highlighted how successful the rapid modernization of Japan was for their military. Korea ended up declaring itself an empire to end its legacy of isolationism and try to put up a fight against Japan. After Japan had its victory in the Russo-Japanese War, it forced Korea into more treaties that would eventually make Korea a protector of Japan and take control of its foreign affairs and defense. Now, throughout the early 1900s, there were more agreements that further sent the claws of Japan into Korea. There was the Taft-Katsura Agreement of 1905. This secret agreement actually happened between the U.S. and Japan, which effectively acknowledged Japanese control over Korea and U.S. control over Philippines. It was internal between the two, but it meant neither of them would fight each other for these lands. Then there was the Japan-Korea Treaty of 1907, which further eliminated Korean sovereignty and placed all government functions under Japanese control. So, by 1910, all of Korea was officially under Japanese rule. Japanese rule led to Korea being industrialized as quickly as possible, which brought much better technology to the realm. However, there was also a widespread of Japanization on the Korean culture to make it a more uniform and controllable society that was under Japanese rule rather than a strong independent colony. Now, this leads right into World War II, where thousands of Korean men were forced to serve in the Japanese war effort, and women had an even worse fate. Pleasure women, or comfort women as they were called, was a term given to Korean mothers, daughters, and wives that were forced to sexually pleasure the Japanese soldiers that occupied the Korean peninsula. This broke all laws of consent and usually came with group sex on one woman, sometimes girls, beatings, and other disgusting abuses. This practice is so widely seen as heinous by both cultures that mentioning the term in either country, Korea or Japan, is seen as culturally and socially inappropriate. This went on throughout the entirety of World War II and, and did not stop until the Allies were able to liberate Korea and then eventually defeat Japan in the war. It is a horrible practice. It's the most systematic way I've seen women used as sex objects in the 1900s that I can recall as of right now and it's just horrible and of course it's known but it isn't talked about as much as the greater parts of the war such as the nukes and the battles and Iwo Jima and all things that went into the Japanese side of the war effort Pearl Harbor all that this needs to be acknowledged because it's absolutely disgusting and it went on for the entirety of the war on top of this men of Korean descent also had a lot of struggles too Thousands of Korean men were exiled to Japan to work in factories and support the war effort by creating weapons and bombs. The work conditions were horrible and many died in the workplace because they were forced to work unreasonable hours in nasty conditions just to keep the war effort going. And then we get to the end of the war. After the United States turned Japan into the land of two rising suns, Korea was occupied by communist USSR in the north and the capital United States in the south. And with that, World War II came to an end. The clash between these two political ideologies created a literal divide in Korea, specifically at the 38th parallel. This was meant to be temporary, but tensions were permanent. In 1948, North Korea and South Korea were established as independent countries based on the ideologies of the two countries that controlled them, the USSR in the North for North Korea, and the United States, the UN, and the Western world in the South for South Korea. Both nations claim that the other half of Korea belongs to them and is not a real Korean nation. And this is when we get into the Kim Dynasty, starting with Kim Il-sung. He became the first leader of North Korea upon its creation. He was previously a Marxist member of the Chinese Communist Party. He was trained as a major in the Red Army against Japan. 
He also led a communist movement against Chinese leaders in parts of the Soviet Union. After World War II, he was recommended by Stalin to be the leader of the new North Korea. He established the Korean People's Army and made art a common practice to depict him as superior to everyone else. The name Kim Il-sung isn't his real name. That was Kim Song-jin. The name Kim Il-sung literally means Kim that is the sun. This goes further into his propaganda that he is this being above all other Koreans in the north. The USSR heavily supported the Kim regime with weapons and money. And with this new arsenal, Kim Il-sung ordered an invasion of South Korea in 1950. And this officially started the Korean War. The Korean War lasted from 1950 until the end of 1953. In the first part of the war, North Korean troops almost conquered the entire peninsula, including Seoul. But then there was the Battle of Incheon, which was the first action taken by the United States and the Western world to back South Korea against the communist North. It was a American-led UN aero-naval invasion against the North Korean forces. South Korean troops and the American allies pushed the North Koreans all the way back to the north and then pushed them almost to the Chinese border. But then there was the Battle of Chinocho River at the end of 1950. It saw the Chinese ally with the North Koreans and push the Allied forces back with over a million Chinese troops from the north. The power of China and the U.S. caused the war to come to a standstill with neither side advancing greatly. A stalemate occurred, and in 1953, the war was ended. It was made semi-official with the Korean Armistice Agreement. This armistice maintained the divisions between North and South Korea and established a demilitarized zone between the two nations at the 38th parallel. Now, the thing with this is that this was a lie. This is not a demilitarized zone at all. Today, there are no less than 1 million active soldiers in this zone at all times. And the reason for this is that by the end of the conflict, there was 4 million people dead. And this made it by far the deadliest conflict in Korean history. That is correlated with the fact that there actually wasn't a peace agreement, there was just this armistice. So on paper, there hasn't been an official end to the Korean War. So that's why North Korea has continued to militarize so heavily, because they consider themselves somewhat still in conflict with South Korea. And they also still consider South Korea a state that shouldn't exist. And things that happened post-war make North Korea an even more unique country. There was the Cholima movement, which was a pro-Soviet and pro-North Korean advancement movement. Agriculture and industrial growth were fueled by the government, forcefully funded and pushed as the top priority of the nation. This forced North Korea into economic success and growth, and for a time, the nation was the second largest economy in Asia behind Japan. Nonetheless, the nation still depended heavily on aid from China and the USSR. From here, it isolated itself from the rest of the world in many ways. And under Kim Il-sung, there would be a lot of actions taken against South Korea through different means that weren't a direct war. One of them was the Korean Airlines jacking of the flight YS-11. It occurred on December 11, 1969. The incident involved a domestic flight for aircraft of Korean Airlines, which was flying from Egangyuan Air Base to Gimpo International Airport in Seoul. The flight was hijacked by a North Korean agent named Cho Cheng-hui. The aircraft carried a total of four crew members and 46 passengers. Among these, 11 individuals, including all four crew members and seven passengers, were not returned to South Korea. The disappearance of the members of this flight and the actions since heightened tensions between the two Koreas for ages. And to this day, the children of some of these people who disappeared have created organizations to challenge the North Korean government for their actions and pressure the South Korean government to investigate what happened further. Now, by the end of all this, Kim Il-sung was a full dictator. He systematically eliminated all opposition to his rule, and Sung tried to make this go international when he fought 
when he funded an elite commando group and ordered them to assassinate the president of South Korea. The attempt was made in 1968, but failed. So, Sung turned internal to get even more aggressive. He started to propagate that him and his family were above all else, that they were the true supreme leaders of not only North Korea, but all Korea. They were blessed by God. They were favored by the past. They are the descendants of past emperors and generals. He made the entire system based on media lies and propaganda that forces the nation into isolation, forces the people to be isolated from the outside world, and forces everyone to believe that Kim Il-sung and his descendants are above everyone else in every way. In 1980, Seoul was selected as the destination for the 1988 Olympics. North Korea wanted access to managing some aspect of the games, but was denied it. In retaliation, North Korea attempted to undermine Seoul by committing acts of terrorism to make the nation look bad. There was the South Korean plane shooting. North Korea shot down a South Korean commercial plane near Burma in the Adelan Sea, and North Korea also boycotted the games. The economy started to struggle even more as the 1980s rolled on, and once the Soviet Union fell in 1991, North Korea had lost a massive ally for aid. The isolation from the rest of the world also didn't help much either. And we're going to go a little more on Kim Il-sung. He maintained power in the nation all the way since 1948. He also formed a cult of personality around himself, became the supreme leader, and required people to regale him as the king of all North Korea. He ascended himself to a persona beyond human and would pass this down to his children, and we still see it today. He did, however, die in 1994, and it shattered the nation. People weeped in the streets and wondered how it was possible that their great leader could have died like a normal man. So, okay, back to reality. Also in the same year that Kim Il-sung passed away, a famine broke out in North Korea. It lasted until 1998, and the death of Sung was seen as part of the cause for the famine by the people, because they thought that the death of Sung was a bad omen, and it would bring struggles. But in reality, the instability of the shaky government struggled to provide basic needs to its people because it had cut itself off from the rest of the world. And once their leader died, food aid was not given by many nations until South Korea and U.S. of all nations actually stepped up to be the ones to help North Korea out, because... The Soviet Union had fallen and Russia was in shambles, and China certainly couldn't help anyone because, well, look at who they were at the time. But the U.S. and the South Korea, despite the beef with North Korea, were the ones to make it happen. And upon the death of Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, his son, inherited power in the nation right away. And once this happened, this became the first communist dynasty in the world. His leadership was marked by worsened economy, tensions with the world, and stability. He did, however, escalate the nuclear arms program, but this worsened international relations even more so than before. Kim Jong-il also had insane tales about himself to make him seem even more unique than other people. It was propagated that he wrote over a thousand books, handwrit and directed the best 11 musicals of all time, and many other egregious lies to make him seem unique. He also had very serious policies that privatized the nation and made everything very secretive. Jong also lived as a king while his people struggled. He imported foreign delicacies while the food shortage still starved his people. And on top of the many other things he did, he also kidnapped South Korea's greatest actress, Choi yeon zee and a South Korean director to make movies in North Korea and push for the national pride. Jong died in 2011, which allowed his son, Kim Jong-un, to inherit the role of leadership of both the army and the nation. The leadership of Kim Jong-un has doubled down on the isolation of the nation and caused even more turmoil with countries like the United States. He force-funded the nuclear program and tested weapons as much as he wanted. In 2017, he launched a long-range nuclear test that threatened the U.S. state of Hawaii. 
This caused the UN to unite against North Korea and sanction the country to a point of almost enforced isolation. In the same year, his half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, was murdered at a Malaysian airport. The murder has been heavily investigated, but the general opinion is that Kim Jong-un himself ordered the hit. Kim Jong-un remains in power today and presides over the most secretive and repressive nation in the world. Getting in and getting out of North Korea is nearly impossible. There are severe, severe punishments for trying to escape the nation, even if you've been a citizen there your whole life. The few people that are able to tour this nation are accompanied by a tour guide with them the entire time, approved by the government who is practically there to act as the eyes of Kim Jong-un himself. This nation is the definition of dystopian. The distance it has between every other nation and the way it operates is literally insurmountable. The only country in the more... The only country I can compare it to is Turkmenistan, with the way that we describe the nation there and the capital and how people who live in nearby countries like Iran say it's literally like living next to a giant black mass. They don't know what's going on. And that's exactly what's happening here in North Korea. In 2018, at the Pyeongchang Olympics, relations between the Koreans started to heal, as both nations marched as one in the game's presentation, and they competed alongside one another as a Korean team rather than separate states for some events. After the games, there was a historic moment. The head of state for each nation met in the other country. This seems to be a push towards better relations between the two Koreas, and maybe we're only a few decades out from the greater Korea uniting itself. But with the gap between the two and the way their systems work, I still believe it's going to be very hard to try and call these one nation. With all that being said, that gets us to the present. North Korea systematically silences and oppresses its people from knowledge of the outside world. A vast majority of people are forbidden from leaving the nation. First, entrapment, then propaganda, is the way North Korea has worked. The government isolates its people and indoctrinates them with the ideas of supremacy in a godlike manner. The Kims and their descendants are seen as figures above figures, gods amongst men. It's as if Superman himself is running the country in the eyes of these people. The nation is heavily divided economically, but still, there is very little the outside world knows about the current state of the nation. Numbers of deaths from starvation are fudged on every way, and the few that are actually released by North Korea can't be believed. There's very little we are able to know about what happens day to day in this nation, we can only assume. And that is the current state of North Korea. Now, we've been very heavy, very grim this entire episode since the 1900s and these massacres and all this. So I'm going to give you one kind of funny but still very plays into how North Korea operates fact from history, and then we're going to get into the very end. So the largest car heist in history actually occurred because of North Korea. In 1974, Swedish businessmen wanted to expand into the young and seemingly growing North Korea. If only they knew. In this year, $70 million worth of goods were sold to North Korea from Sweden on invoice. Part of it was 1,000 Volvos, which are cars made in that region. Every year, since this date, North Korea's economy slipped and payments never came to Sweden, and they probably never will. Every year, Sweden sends two invoice reminders to North Korea, to which they have never received a reply. Not ever. As of now, inflation and interest leave Korea with a $322 million debt to Sweden after all the inflation. So, literally the greatest car heist in history, 1,000 cars, is just two nations that made a deal, and one just didn't pay up. North Korea has refused for 50 years to pay this tab. Refused. They haven't even acknowledged it. They don't even believe there is a tab. They just believe these cars belong to them, these thousand Volvos and all of the other things that came with the trade. So much so that the value of said trade has gone up almost five times as much as it was before. So this plays into many things. I think it's a very funny story, but it also plays into the fact that Korea, that North Korea will do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, no matter who it affects. And 
With that, that does get us to the very end where I want to say a little bit of a mindset or a takeaway, kind of something we try and pull from every episode we do on the history of these nations and try and connect it to the world today and how you can live your life. So that takeaway for North Korea is going to be resist. Whatever that means for you, do it. I say that with North Korea because these people are currently in one of the most unique, terrible situations in the world. It is truly a special kind of hell to live in that nation. Everything is a lie. Buildings are a lie. They're filled with fake food. They're filled with fake technology. There's literally giant empty buildings across the capital. There's fake supermarkets. There's fake everything. Everything is this propagated lie to make the outside world seem like North Korea is a normal place to live. When internally people are starving, their rights are repressed, there is no political representation, and they are under one of the most unique and confusing forced cult of personality totalitarian regimes the world has ever seen. And that is not exaggeration. With the modern day media and the ability that nations have to propagate the things they want, the way North Korea runs is like something we've never seen before. And we're seeing that with the people. Despite this, these people are still here. They're still 20, almost 30 million strong. There's still a lot of North Koreans that, no matter what is going on, have stayed in their nation, even if it has been forced. These people are trying. There still is a North Korean culture, one that honors the thousands and thousands of year old culture of greater Korea. These people have worked hard. These people are great warriors. These people have been warriors in every area of their life because they have to be to survive. And going back to have to, they have to resist. They're resisting whatever it is they can from this crazy government that makes them think they are so inferior. Some people are not. Some people have been forcibly pushed into this idea of fully buying into whatever it is that North Korea does. But many people are doing what they can. They're using VPNs. They're getting access to the internet. They're doing whatever they possibly can to learn about the things that have happened in their crazy nation. And with it, they're resisting. They're resisting the rule of the Kims. They're resisting Kim Jong-un. They're resisting everything that this dictatorship comes with. And I'm not to say that's right or wrong, but it is the truth that these people are being abused and many are not standing for it in their own way. I say with you, do the same thing. Resist whatever it is in your life that's pushing against the truest version of yourself because we all know there's something. It can either be the wrong relationship. It could be your parents. It could be someone telling you not to pursue the career you want. There's always an outside force pushing you towards something you probably don't want to do. And whatever that thing is, resist it. Resist it in your way. Some people look to that as violence. You need to stand up to someone, push them back quite physically, and literally handle it that way. Sometimes it's outshining them. Sometimes it's just pursuing your own path, breaking away, isolating yourself. All these different things. There is definitely a way for you to resist whatever the hell is going on in your life. That way you can be like all the people of this northern part of Korea who have resisted so many things for so long. Because hopefully for you, it is not the things these people have been through, which is so many abuses and literal dictators and literal empires invading them. Hopefully that is not your struggle if you're listening to this. That would be truly unique. But if it is, resist. And if it isn't, resist. And if it's something as small as you not wanting to do homework today or you not wanting to go to work, resist whatever it is that's pushing against you doing what you have to do for yourself and your life. Because that is what North Koreans have done for the past 5,000 years and it's what you need to do now. So with that, that is going to be all I have for you guys. I loved doing this episode. Anyone who gets a chance to research North Korea, one is going to be found with a whole lot of, I don't know what's going on here and secrecy. But they're also going to be very fascinated by all the different insane doctrines that have been put in place here and all the crazy things that have been done. And I, I even forgot to mention with Kim Jong-il that there was a time he had women workers inspect every piece of rice that came into his palace to see if it was uniform or not. And if it didn't meet a standard of grain of rice, it would be tossed out. 
it's just there's just so many things of that caliber that have happened in this nation's history since it was established as North Korea that it's just it's just unique and it's hard to believe that it's the same world that we live in as people spoiled in the West speaking for myself and it's, it's very unique so I'm very glad you guys are here I'm very glad you guys came with me to do this I'm very glad I got to do this and this was a very unique one so I hope you enjoyed but with that I am going to say goodbye and one final time my name is Reese Garlinski this is Young History, and that was North Korea. You guys have a great one.